0: Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host Mike Gelb and on this show we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer facing startups. If you're enjoying this show if you could please leave a review on the Apple podcast app as it helps other folks find it that would be really helpful. Our guest today is Elizabeth Yin. Elizabeth is a co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund, a pre-seed fund for software entrepreneurs. Previously Elizabeth was a partner at 500 Startups where she invested in seed stage companies and ran the Mountain View Accelerator. In her prior life, Elizabeth co-founded and ran an ad tech company called LaunchBid, acquired in 2014. Her work and writing on startup fundraising has been featured in numerous publications including TechCrunch, Forbes, Huffington Post, BetaKit, and more. It was such a pleasure talking with Elizabeth about investing in the early stages, particularly when there's no traction. So without further ado, here's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me and coming on the show. How are you today?
1: Good. Well, thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. What compelled you to start LaunchBid and what attracted you to startups in general?
1: (laughs) I think that's a question I should be asking your audience. Um, It doesn't really make any sense, but I think, you know, I grew up in the Silicon Valley and I'm dating myself here, but I grew up during the the dot-com boom. So growing up in the Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom was just an amazing time. And uh, I knew pretty much from high school that I wanted to start a company someday when I grew up.
0: After you started LaunchBit and had a successful exit, why did you switch to become an investor and and, and want to head into venture capital?
1: So, you know, it's funny, like a lot of people ask me that, like, oh, when are you going to go and start another company? And I actually see this as a startup. Uh, It very much is. And we can talk about that. but. You know what happened was after I sold Launchbit, I was trying to think about kind of what to do next. Took a little breather, but I I knew in my head that I wanted to you know attack another problem or something. But the problem is I had been so heads down in the ads world for so long. I knew I definitely did not want to do an ads idea, but I didn't really know of any other problems to solve. And so I thought, well, okay, I can go back to 500 Startups, which is the accelerator that we went through with my company Launchbit. And maybe mentor and get to know some of the companies in the batches and maybe join somebody else's company or get some ideas, or learn about something new. And in the process of doing so, actually, that's how I ended up learning a little bit about the investment world. I mean, certainly I had seen just from my own fundraisers with LaunchBit how that works, but I got to see a lot more through the eyes of all the other startups that were going through the batches. And I was like, wow, this is pretty terrible. Actually, the problem I want to solve is VC. So so that actually was kind of the beginnings of my thinking about, well, how can you actually improve the funding landscape for startups? Like, what does that look like? And, and, and that is what led me actually to Hustle Fund later
0: on. I mean, you obviously put out such great, helpful content for startups. When you say that you want to change a VC and maybe VC's broken. What do you mean by that? So
1: it means a few different things. So there's the short-term plan. There's the long-term plan for hustle fund. The short-term plan is the VC, I don't know, ecosystem itself, I think has problems. Like for example, we've all had experiences where investors have ghosted us or, you know, just gone MIA. You can't, you ping them on email multiple times. Like you had a great initial meeting, but then somehow they disappear and and then these other problems of you know n- no one really knows what it means to be a lead investor and in all this so some of these mechanical things like either around bad behavior or how deals get done or or that kind of thing speed those are some of the initial things we want to change and do better and part of that is we've got a vc fund at hustle fund We invest in startups and, you know, I think by raising the bar in some of these ways that forces other VCs to also do the same, right? Like if you're constantly ghosting founders and and being late and all that, it's going to be hard for you to compete when all the other newer firms are not doing that. So That's the immediate goal. The longer-term goal is, I think, in all honesty, uh, VC is a very small subset of startups. Like I think a lot of people don't really understand whether a company should be VC backed or not. Everyone just knows, oh, I need money in my company. I thought that too. Who do I go to? Well, VCs are the only ones marketing themselves. So but when you think about what VCs are looking for, like almost definitionally, they're looking for companies they can invest in where they believe those companies can get to a hundred million run rate, revenue run rate by year five. That's a really hard thing to achieve. And I think most software companies or e-commerce companies or whatever will just never get there. Is that a bad thing? No. But right now, there really is only one asset class called VC that funds startups. So that's what everybody goes to. But I think in the longer run, you can imagine, well, there, there should be actually other funds of different types, different structures and terms and all of that to be able to fund the large, the much larger swath of companies that will do very well, but may not get there. Like a company could get to 10 million run rate in five years. That would be a fantastic company. The founder would do really well in an exit. So there must be some sort of financial terms that would make sense for that kind of company. So we see VC as the first foray and we've launched a VC fund we are also in process of launching another different type of fund that is unannounced and then we see ourselves launching more funds down the road for for different types of things for all for investing in startups
0: we talked a bit about how hustle fund hopes hopes change the and and is changing the a, a bit of the dynamic in, in venture capital i also know that you're you're looking to change in terms of leveling the playing field for founders that don't come from you know the stanfords or the ivy leagues of the world what's your advice to these founders and how do you think about sourcing deals for founders that aren't coming from these prestigious schools
1: so i think the, the good news is i think the world is changing i realize founders always feel like gosh it's so hard to raise money and and it's because i'm at a disadvantage in some form or another and I think the reality is it is just honestly hard for everybody to raise money regardless of your background but admittedly i would say just from looking at all the data yes it is significantly easier for somebody who went to a certain school worked at a certain place you know uh, lived in a certain geography, uh, you know, certain gender and race. Like, if you have, if you check the boxes on a lot of those things, it is easier. Now, but that being said, there are just also now a lot more investors. And I'm talking both angels and micro VCs like ourselves, where you know, most micro VCs that have spun up, they take old cold emails. So you don't need to have like a warm network anymore. You need to be able to write a good cold email to capture attention. And most cold emails I see are way too long and not that interesting. But I mean, I think if you, if you can do that and carefully craft your story, I actually think you have a really good shot. We do a lot of investing off of these cold emails or, or people who come directly to us or our application process. And uh, without a warm referral or anything like that. And so I think you can go ahead and feel free to do, you know, cold email investors. But I think then what should you focus on? Well, I think you should really work on that story and that cold email and crafting that before you hit send.
0: What percentage of those founders that you know are outside of your network that need that that are reaching out uh, through a cold email? What's percentage of those founders you actually invested? Twenty
1: in? percent of our portfolio is direct. Yeah, did not get referred in by anybody, whether they're a best friend or even an acquaintance.
0: That's awesome. My next question: Your advice for founders that live in secondary and tertiary markets?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so that's I think another thing has, that has changed. I think just in general, the industry has progressed a bit. I mean, there's still a long ways to go, but a bit in the last, you know, call it three years where we certainly are investing outside of the Bay Area. In fact, most of our investments are outside of the Bay Area, these, the San Francisco Bay Area these days. Um, We do have geography limitations. We're only investing at this time in the United States, Canada, and now Southeast Asia. I think eventually I would love to do fully global investments, but at this point in time, we just start too understaffed and under resourced to be able to do so but i mean we that means that we are looking at many different cities i think within those geographies and and i think i would say that many micro funds do as well like i think you know there are a couple of drivers one is there are just a lot more investors and some of these investors are just you know either more woke or whatever you want to call it but the other thing is there's also a lot more competition as a result of more investors and so people Are tired of competing for the same deals in San Francisco. The valuations are then too high. And so they want to look elsewhere at other kinds of startups that are either overlooked because of geography or the founders or non traditional backgrounds or whatever.
0: How do you think about ecosystems in today's age? Because, you know, I went to a a venture capital event and there was a venture capitalist on the panel and someone asked, why are you based? I'm, I'm based in Los Angeles. Why are you based in? in los angeles and then his response is oh i can be based anywhere i'm based in los angeles because i love the weather i do still feel like ecosystems are still very very important and just you know saying that you can invest in a broad range and you know he was pointing to Zoom communication a lot of different communication that you can see but so i was just curious how you think about ecosystems in general
1: yeah so actually i think i'm probably one of the few people in this san francisco area who who's a bit bearish on the bay area i mean i i think just i grew up here so i i love it from a personal standpoint but I think if you kind of look at the trajectory of this place, I don't know if you've been here recently, Mike, but it's kind of like dog shit these days, literally. And um, the cost of living is just way too high for any new founder who has not made money, right? You cannot make your runway work out. So in parallel, you also see all these other cities, like their startup ecosystems are starting to thrive and really you know, catch some speed. Like you, know, you mentioned Los Angeles, I would definitely say that's one of them like the honey exit everybody was going gaga over that and that's like a big proof point and so you see things like that you know Toronto is another one that I would say New York has already kind of surpassed that and rivals San Francisco so so the combination of this place kind of going downhill and other places going up I think you know founders have a lot of choices to where they want to live that being said I'd say at the later stages like the Series B, Series C levels, people do seriously think about either moving their headquarters to San Francisco or whatnot, because I think the reality is there's still a lot more funding here at the late stages. And there's just also a lot of tech people here for hiring lots of people. So I think at this point in time, I would say you can start a business anywhere. And this is why we look everywhere. But what we also see is later some of our startups that get to those later stages end up starting a headquarters here and have another business office or engineering office elsewhere. That may be bigger, but they have some presence here still.
0: And so since this is a consumer podcast, I have to ask a few uh, consumer questions. I know that you, you you mentioned that you do mostly do enterprise, but I wanted to first cover on, on how you look at an enterprise company versus a consumer company.
1: So I think a uh, quick caveat, less so enterprise, but just like more B2B generally. I think enterprise suggests like very, selling to very large companies, but we also have portfolio companies that sell to startups for example i think a consumer even within consumer there are a couple of different classifications right there's the consumer where it's ad based monetization and then there's consumer where you're selling something like whether it's e-commerce or there's a marketplace but like somebody is paying for something and i think i want to kind of make that distinction for us like as a small fund like we don't do ad revenue based models because you you have to have a lot of money uh, capitalizing a company to be able to get to the stage where the company is so big, has so many users like an Instagram or something, and then you can start to make money. That's just not a good fit for a small fund. And so I think just categorically because we're a small fund, that's like out of reach for us. So that's a whole swath of consumer, right? Think of all the apps that monetize based on ads like that. That's just out for us, unfortunately, as, as a small fund. The flip side is, okay... Well, what, how do you think about, like, consumer where you can actually charge the consumers for something, either in a marketplace model or, or for good or service? And um, we definitely have done investments there. I think the question for consumer is more about how can you get, quote, market pull really quickly? And that's something that we think about for all of our startups, whether they're B2B or consumer. And for consumer, it's especially tricky because consumer, you know, consumers tend to be a little bit fickle. So how do you find something that they that they really, really need? And so where we have placed bets on the consumer side have been in a couple of categories. One, I would say digital health for consumers is an area. So we've done a lot in like telemedicine and pharmaceuticals that are direct to consumer. And in those models, insurance companies, at least here in the US, they pay and the consumer gets the either the free service or the drug for free. And that customer acquisition cycle works really, really well because that's pretty much a need to have. Like, I need my drug. I need my you know, doctor. I need my whatever. And I don't have to think twice about it because I'm not paying for it. And that's just you know, how our medical system works in the US. So that has worked out well for us, and we will continue to make bets in that area on the consumer side. You know, we've certainly done others as well. Like, we have a, an education company that is similar to Lambda School called Kenzie Academy. They're doing quite well. And, you know, you now see a lot of players like, them and Lambda who are trying to change education and again like deferring sort of the payments such that like okay consumers get their education for free first and then they pay back once they start getting a job I think I would see that model really uh, growing and thriving as well. The more you can give consumers value for free and have someone else pay, like that's something that I just really love in consumer.
0: Appreciate you making that distinction in, in terms of what your actual focus on when it comes to specifically consumer companies. Correct me if I'm wrong. You uh, Hustle Fund, you write twenty-five thousand dollars checks, pre-seed and seed.
1: I, I would just call it pre-seed. Yeah, and by pre-seed, what does that mean? Basically, you have a product, so it's more than the idea stage. You have a product, but you don't really have any traction. Like we don't care about traction.
0: What are some qualities in the founder? And if you could just take me to a little bit about your your personal due diligence process, that would be really terrific.
1: Well the interesting thing about this stage is there's not a whole lot. <laughs> I mean our process is actually very straightforward. I'd say the biggest bottleneck is a lot of people, you know, tell us you guys are really slow in getting back to us on our applications. And that is true and it's something that we really struggle with and working on. But once you get to the phone call stage like if we're like yes love this application want to set up a call from there it's actually very fast so we do basically one call with a partner here and that call is about one hour and then we can usually get back to that company within 48 hours and sign and wire within the next week so that that's our process and we don't need a lead we don't need a round even like very often we're the person only check Basically, if we want to do the deal, we propose terms on a, a convertible note or a safe and the founder, you know, maybe there's back and forth, maybe there's not. And then we just sign in wire directly. And that's that. So that's our process. In terms of what we're looking for, we can do all of our due diligence basically in that one conversation because there's just not a whole lot there. Like there's no numbers to dig into. Yeah. Like no numbers of any sort, really not even revenue, let alone like cohort analyses or lifetime value or any of this. We mostly ask questions at a pretty high level. And, you know, I think these are questions that everybody should be generally prepared for like namely you know what is the specific problem you're going after we really want to know at least subjectively based on your customer discovery like what exactly is the problem and you'd be surprised most people cannot articulate that because they either haven't learned enough about it or they haven't done their customer discovery very well and then, you know, of course, your solution, which is the product you've built in most cases to kind of address that problem. And then I think the other things that we're curious about are like, you know, the founder's background, why you're doing this, how you know each other, et cetera. And then the last couple of pieces are, you know, the thing, other things that may be important to your business. Like, while we don't care about traction, we do want to understand, okay, if you do have traction, what is it? Like, what have you done in this business date? You know, do you have any pilots or do you not, et cetera? So, so that's kind of what we're looking for can be figured out in a 60 minute conversation or less and that's that's that and you know i think at the end of the day for better or worse then it's a gut call right like based on all this information you just told me do i do i think that this business has the potential to be a 100x winner by that i mean like you know if we're entering at you know let's just call it 3 million post money valuation like will they sell for 300 million dollars and you know that's obviously very subjective like I have no idea, you have no idea. And um, you know, that that's just gut at that point. Rightly or wrongly, that's not, you know, particularly fair or whatever you want to call it. But that that's just how decisions have to happen at this stage.
0: What attracted you, since you don't have data, what attracted you to this stage of investing?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's it's the stage that I understand best from kind of all sides of of this hexagon or whatever the analogy is. Like, you know, I was a founder myself. We, you know, my exit was in all honesty, not that large, so it's not like I know what it's like to take a company IPO or even get to Series B, right? So I understand this stage very well from from starting from scratch and you know scaling up from there. And then when I was running, uh, so I ended up running the 500 Startups Accelerator, and all of my companies were at this stage. And then you know, it's, and I've done angel investing at the stage, so this is just a stage that I know very well from kind of all sides. And I think it's also the most exciting, right? Like I think by the time a company has something, you know, I, I feel fortunate that there are companies in my portfolio that have done phenomenally well. And when you look at the investors coming in, it, it's very transactional. Like my founders ha- at that point have a lot of choice. Like by the time it's clear that this is a, you know, this is a unicorn business and everyone wants in, it's not like my founder really cares about any of those people, <laughs> like who are coming in at that point. But there's a lot of rapport that's built in the very beginning when life is tough, nobody else is interested in investing, you you can really build rapport well at that stage. And I just kind of like that relationship that I can build with my founders then. Like, I don't want to be the one piling in at the Series B when it's very clear that this is, this is a winner, right? That just... It's it's not the same experience, and I I love this early stage experience.
0: That makes a lot of sense on, on why you love it and why you're why you're focused on it. What makes a great investing partner?
1: Um, I think at a bare bare minimum, <laughs> I, I you know a lot of people talk about oh you should always be raising from value add investors, but I actually don't think that's true. So at a bare minimum, I think it's like sometimes you just need cash. And so at a bare minimum, I would recommend taking money from people who will not be a pain in the butt. Like that, that's sort of the minimum bar. If somebody's calling you all the time and bugging you all the time about like, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Then that may not be a great fit. But so that's on sort of the low bar end. And then like, what is the most ideal end? Well you have investors who not only will put in money, but will actually be value-add. And there are many ways to be value-add. Uh, and I know that investors certainly think they're more value-add than they actually are, but you know, I think some things like network, being able to find investors who can introduce you to either other investors or potential acquirers down the road or potential business partners or potential customers, that's all great. And investors who have maybe a product background or a UX background or a customer acquisition background, like if you need any of those skill sets, like if you have a deficiency in any of those or whatever, like that would also be great. Um, So that's kind of the the range, but I don't think everyone needs to be value add. Like I, you know, if I were struggling to raise money and somebody who, who was quote dumb money, but, but a nice person and wouldn't be a pain in my side offered me money at great terms i would take it
0: so so thinking about you know money and 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 who you have as investors is it a question mark or a warning sign for vcs when a company at the early stages takes takes money from angels?
1: Oh, no, not at all. In fact, I think angels are the light bread of startup ecosystems. Like when people kind of ponder why has San Francisco been so successful and now New York, I would say it's probably because of the angels. Like there are so many angels around here and so many angels in New York. And I think that's kind of what jump started the ecosystem.
0: I remember talking to an investor who is is much more in the late stage, like he's series B and and, and series C. And, and, and he was saying how for him, a startup with angels is a big warning sign for him. What are some consumer trends that you're excited about?
1: Certainly, in digital health, and as as you know, we all know in the U.S. like we th- there are just like a lot of problems on the health side. Everything from being able to get access to care to the costs to the uh, you know efficiencies of things like uh, from all sides of that problem, we're very interested in that. And I would I would put you know mental health and wellness, just like broadly in that category. So not necessarily pharmaceutical drugs per se, but like other things like, you know, meditation, exercise, like those things. So that's, that's the big one for us. I think, you know, there are other things that are Interesting. That kind of actually blends to B2B a bit, like remote work, the rise of remote work. Um, that that's a little bit consumer asking. That often it's individuals. How do how is it that you actually get freelance or remote work done in this new economy? Uh, the third area that I'm still interested in, even though it's less hot these days, is like um, around uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain. <laughs> and um, I, I think that that hasn't quite played out in the way that everybody. Would have hoped, but I mean, the long term vision that I'm interested in, since there's so many different uses for blockchain, but is around, you know, sort of personal fintech, if you will, like remittances is a good example and a good use case for cryptocurrency, things around that and more infrastructure around things like that, moving money around. Like, it's surprisingly very challenging to move money around across borders. Certainly within the U.S. you have Venmo and Square and that's no problem, but I think across borders it starts to get kind of tricky.
0: That's cool. What's one thing you would change when it came to venture capital?
1: The higher bucket level is just common courtesy. There are many issues that kind of stem from lack of common courtesy. And, and so that's, that's probably the high level bucket. Like, it's just amazing to me that this industry can even run without common courtesy. Like if you were, I don't know, rude to your customers in any other industry, like you would be out of business almost
0: immediately. Right. Right. What is your most recent consumer investment and what makes you excited about it?
1: Where we've tended to invest has been sort of on this border of B2B, I would say. Um, so there, there is this company that I invested in just a couple of months ago called The Crew. So The Crew is actually a professional women's network if you will and and basically the the idea is that women professional women would pay a membership a yearly membership for this and they get matched up with a group of people who become their crew and they become basically a support group to help each other further their professional goals so ultimately it's a consumer who's paying for this sometimes i guess you could get reimbursed by your workplace but it is helping you grow professionally And I think the reason for that is I had just seen like a number of like female peers actually just informally form their own crews. Like they would, you know, get dinner with random professional women and to talk about like how they can help solve each other's problems. And so I thought, well, maybe there should be a a service that that actually is based on this entire concept. And so that's, that's what they do.
0: Wow. It sounds really innovative. Uh, that's really cool. What's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't and in retrospect, wish you did.
1: Because I haven't been investing that long with Hustle Fund, there are not that many companies in this category yet. But I would say that a couple of companies that are are starting to break out are, um, there's a company called Tandem. Um, they are like a remote work tool and they were recently backed by Andreessen Horowitz. They went through YC. I looked at this pre-YC, and, uh, I think I forgot how much money they raised, but I, I, I want to say that they had raised at like a $30 million pre-money valuation. Don't quote me on this, but it's something on that order. And, and that happened just this year, even. So, so that that's one company and, and that might be on my anti-portfolio list.
0: What's one book that impacted you professionally and one book that has impacted you personally?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I I think the most influential startup book on my life was definitely Lean Startup for a Professional. You know, like when I first started building out my company, and, and this was when I left my cushy job at Google back in 2008, that book actually had not yet been written. And so I was like floundering about like building out all this stuff that nobody wanted, et cetera. But I think lean startup single-handedly has changed the way that everybody builds a so- at least a software startup today. Like the concept of a minimum viable product, like what it is you need to de-risk immediately and kind of how you prioritize things. That has definitely changed the way people think. And it certainly changed the way I think, you know, I was basically two years into kind of just floundering and I read Eric Reese's very first blog post before the book even came out on this topic. And I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. I've been doing everything all wrong. And um, that was really an aha moment for me. So, so that's, that's top of mind for me. On, on the personal side, like I love the book. I don't know if it's the most influential, but I love the book, Born to Run.
0: Love that book too. So,
1: so I'm not even a runner. like. And, and so actually that was my initial reluctance in reading this book. I had a lot of friends tell me about this book and I was like, well, I don't really run or I don't run that much. So why would I be interested in this? This book is called Born to Run. But it was actually one of the most fascinating books to me about long distance running and how people historically are just like born to run. And and it was just an amazing writing job.
0: I agree with you. It's a really fascinating book. What's one piece of advice that you have for consumer companies at that pre-seed, very, very early stage?
1: So I think um, it kind of goes back to the initial segmentation that I talked about. So there's ad revenue-based startups, and then there's kind of everyone who's selling something. It doesn't matter what you're selling. Um, I think kind of per lean startup philosophy, if you are in that latter ladder category where you're charging for something, it could be a marketplace, it could be an e-commerce company, it could be a service or a product, whatever it is, I would definitely de-risk the customer acquisition as much as possible and start pre-selling. So one of the reasons, for example, why there's been such a rise in direct to consumer is that like the best marketers kind of just randomly test random things. Like I have friends who are marketers who just randomly test and by test, I mean they run ads for random products that don't even exist and they start collecting money and then they go and build the product. And and that actually works phenomenally well. Um, this is actually uh, atomic. The incubator is is built off of this idea. They spend you know say twenty five thousand dollars on ads to really just get customers before our product even exists. And I think you can totally do that in consumer. So that's for that whole category of companies where you're charging something. I think for ad based revenue models, that's that's challenging, and I don't really have any great advice there. For those companies, I think it's a bit of a crapshoot. It's a bit of a crapshoot in the sense of, can you raise enough capital to keep going, even if you have a great product? And will the ad revenue down the road five years later work out? And you don't know those things. So the initial things you have to test are just around user engagement. And I think the best companies that do this really well are incredibly cohort centric, like they track their cohorts and the engagement like crazy, and really just work on improving the engagement every single month. And, you know, you see a lot of consumer companies in that category where they are run by people who yeah, kind of loosely use Google Ana- Analytics, but you have to really, really be disciplined about the cohort analysis for those businesses.
0: I love your advice, especially um, on the former for companies where you're actually charging and actually you know, uh, building a product.
1: For sure. Like there's a company called Kettle and Fire. They make uh, bone broth. And it, it feels kind of random. And to a certain extent, it kind of was. But the uptake on people buying bone broth online From their initial tests even before having the broth like there was no broth in the beginning they were just like literally running ad tests the uptake was just amazing and it was actually kind of nuts and then they went and built the product like the the bone broth later
0: (laughs) wow that's wild well elizabeth this has been fantastic thank you so much for your time
1: yeah of course well thanks for having me mike
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Elizabeth on and I really appreciate her sharing her advice. If you'd like to keep up to date with Elizabeth, you can follow her on Twitter at dunkhippo33 and head over to her website, elizabethyin.com. Both are located in the show notes. If you are a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders' answers on this show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at MikeGelb. You can also follow along for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and until next time.